so does someone want to take a shot at what a uh, discourse is? Is my thing not, sh my little deal's not showing up? Well, that's, that was the whole purpose of having this slide. Uh, but he's not, uh, no. Oh, well. That's the Lord's kindness to not be so goofy and cute about things. So. Uh, someone take a shot at what a discourse is. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably the right one. The way Duval Hayes uses it is a little bit more specific. So a discourse, per uh, Duval Hayes, is a discourse uh, are units of connected text that are longer than paragraphs. So what have we covered so far? What was the first thing? Words make up sentences. Sentences make up paragraphs. Paragraphs make up discourses. Uh, the bottom part is Maxwell. Oh, yeah, so I know GC loves him some Piper, so that was a, that was a little bit of a... The previous slide set this whole thing up, so it's lost on us now. Uh, the bottom part is Maxwell. So discourses are, are simply they're cohesive, they're delineated, they're uh, extended blocks of text that advance in a narrative, advance an episode or in a letter, advance an argument. Okay, so... Uh, Paragraph, uh, discourses are simply a bunch of paragraphs put together that are all connected. How they are connected, we'll talk about this evening. How they're delineated, how an author sets them off apart from other discourses, we'll talk about uh, tonight. I mean, throw a rock and you can hit any number of discourses in the Bible. Okay? This isn't rocket science. So you might have the whole life of David is a discourse. That's a delineated text block tracking a guy's life from start to finish. But within the life of David, there are a bunch of other discourses. You've got David and Goliath, and David and Saul, and David and Yahweh himself, David and Bathsheba, etc. Those are all little mini, if you will, discourses that the author is setting apart for a purpose, starting and stopping them. You've got Jesus's, for example, Galilean ministry from Matthew 4 to Matthew 18. Within that, you've got a number of other discourses. I've just got a couple listed here. Sermon on the Mount or the little block of parables in Matthew 13. Those themselves are discourses that are made up of all the words and the sentences and the paragraphs that we've talked about uh, in class so far. Or Paul might write on household humility in Ephesians. And within that larger discourse are a few other discourses. Talking about moms and dads and husbands and wives and bosses and their employees. That making sense? Yep, that's right. We'll talk about yeah. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that. that's a great question. Thanks for setting that up. I'll give you your two bucks later. <laughs> Duval Hayes goes through, and they provide this little excerpt from Sherlock Holmes and what made Sherlock Holmes fun and exciting to read was all the details that he picks up on a spot of dirt on a shoe and which tells me this, and a smudge on your hand, it tells me that. So he's able to construct a whole narrative. Now, uh, and Duval Hayes are right to, to provide a caveat after that excerpt, that when we come to the Bible, we're not solving a whodunit, right? God hasn't hidden things that we've got to go try to find out and piece together, right? God's made things clear. They're cryptic in some places. That's why parables are there. Jesus is hiding the truth in plain sight. Uh, but for God's people, he's not playing a shell game. He's not hiding it from us. So 
Uh, it's, not, it's not a game of clue that, that we've got to piece together and imagine uh, certain details or something. God has laid this out. God has laid for us. And I'm going to use the metaphor tonight of breadcrumbs. We're not solving a whodunit. We're following breadcrumbs that God himself has given to us. Now, uh, God's not playing peekaboo with us. He's not playing a shell game with us. No one wants us to know the Bible more than God wants us to know the Bible. Okay? And so Duval Hayes used, uh, Pastor Rick was uh, bemoaning, uh, as if Pastor Rick could bemoan, but imagine that. Uh, do we have another nine things to, to follow? I mean, the last couple of sessions, nine things of this and nine things of that. We do have something like that tonight. We only have five of them. And I don't like using five things to notice. My brain needs a little more metaphor for it to, to stick. And so I'm going to use the metaphor of breadcrumbs. These are breadcrumbs that God has laid out for us that, that we have to follow and should follow for our own joy and understanding of the word. So we're going to have five breadcrumbs for interpreting discourses. Longer blocks of text connected by all the words and sentences and paragraphs. That makes sense? Pastor Jordan last week mentioned about the uh, chapter and verses. Those don't come along 10th, 11th century. So can you imagine without any chapter and verses in the original text and with little to no punctuation... There's very, there's very little punctuation in the original text. We're used to that. We know, oh, there's a period, I'm stopping here, and here's an indentation. So, so the author is giving me the clues by punctuation. What if you don't have that? If you don't use that, what must you use? You've got to use words. You've got to use style. That the readers intuit that they know to pick up on those kinds of things. We do that intuitively, too. We just don't realize we're doing it when we're reading our own modern literature. So here are five breadcrumbs for interpreting discourses. Everybody tracking? Yeah. Okay. Breadcrumb number one. Connections between paragraphs and episodes and or episodes. Episodes uh, pertaining to narrative texts, uh, paragraphs to arguments. Uh, perhaps in New Testament letters. So here's the first breadcrumb. We want to find, is the author making some sort of connection between, we've talked about words and sentences, is he doing the same thing, is he connecting paragraphs or episodes together? Okay. I'm going to try to give a couple of Old Testament, New Testament examples as we go along uh, through this, so hang in there and we'll use some readers along the way. Uh, what are these types of connections? What could they be? He could use repeated words and phrases. That's fairly easy, and we'll talk about that. We're going to use one, that because it's low-hanging fruit. He could use cause and effect. Do you remember uh, last week, I think, we talked about uh, conditional sentences, which we uh, signal a conditional sentence or paragraph with what words? If, then. Right? Got a prodasis apodosis. If then, if this, then that. So when we think cause and effect, we can think in terms of when then. When this happened, then that happened. And the author is, they may not use those particular words, but we make the connection. This episode is happening because that episode happened. See? 
So the, the author could be connecting a bunch of texts together using that. Or timestamps, sequences in the year of King Uzziah's death. Or in the 14th, month of the, 14th day of the month of Abib. So he's setting us up, okay, starting about an episode with a timestamp of, of sorts. That makes sense? I'm going to talk about one type of connection, and those are repeated words and phrases. It's pretty easy for us. Uh, I think we do it intuitively without being too intimidated by it. But here's an Old Testament example of an author using uh, repeated words and phrases to set apart, set off a discourse. One, and Duval Hayes used different examples, so if you have the book or workbook, you get twice as much, uh, twice as many examples. One is Saul and his spear. When you read through 1 Samuel, this struck me, we were doing this as a family a couple of years ago, it just it hit me like a ton of bricks. We hardly ever read about Saul, who doesn't, isn't very far from his spear. Over and over again, Saul and his spear, Saul with his spear nearby. Now, what might the author be trying to communicate to us by repeating that over and over? What is he saying about the quality or the nature of Saul's kingship? Yeah, he's a king who's, who will lead by force. Right? Not by the spirit. And in fact, Samuel warned Israel about that, didn't he? In 1 Samuel 8, Israel says, we want a king. Samuel says, I don't think that's a good idea. God says, they want it. Let's give it to them. And what does Samuel say about this king that they're going to get? They don't know it's Saul yet. In the 1 Samuel 8, there's another repeated word in there in phrase. This king that you want, Israel, over and over again, at the end of 1 Samuel 8, he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. He's going to, take, he's going to conscript your sons into a standing army, if you're going to have a standing army, what do you have to have? Money. You've got to feed these guys. And so he's going to take from you, your sons. He's going to take the stuff from you to feed your sons. He's going to take and he's going to take. And Saul is rarely without his spear. The sort of king that Israel wanted and got was not a man of the spirit like David would be. In fact, the Hebrew word for spear, it's a little tidbit of trivia, I suppose, uh, used 29 times in First and Second Samuel. It's only used 18 times in the rest of the Old Testament. So by that phrase and word, the author's setting apart a discourse for us to help us understand not just events that's happening with Saul, but the kind of king that Saul is. That makes sense? Another example that Duval Hayes uses is in Mark 8. Mark 8, 22 to 26. Do you remember this? We won't have to, I don't know, we'll read all through this. It's pretty wordy. Uh, remember this parable where Jesus uh, takes this guy out of town, heals the blind man, and says, hey, what do you see? And he says, I, I see fuzzy things all blurry. I see men like trees. And then Jesus heals him fully, and he sees things clearly. You remember that? That's a weird passage. It, it does. It's strange, isn't it? You think, why didn't... Jesus could heal the guy all the way. Did Jesus have trouble? Was it a blindness that tripped Jesus up? Was it... What, what, what is going on that Jesus had this 
two-stage healing of this guy. But if you look in the text, and I've highlighted all the, the words that are getting at sight, our eyes, okay? Over and over again, Mark is using these phrases, look, see, blind man, gearing our minds and our attention to this man's blindness. And note that little last phrase, we'll connect it uh, here shortly. And he ends that little episode with this, don't, don't go into the village um, when you go home. We will be helped to look at the flanking paragraphs. So what comes before, what comes after. So immediately before this episode is Jesus with the disciples in the boat. Remember this? They didn't take bread with them. They just saw a miracle of Jesus, and they forgot to take bread, and they're complaining about it. And um, Jesus steps in and says, what are you guys, I mean, Jesus wouldn't have a cross word, I, I don't suppose, but what are you guys even doing? You're talking about bread. Did you not just see what happened? He tells them to watch out, and I've highlighted some of those words that are getting at what the author intends us to get at with the healing of the blind man. Because they just got off this boat where Jesus has asked them, uh, do you not yet perceive or understand? Do you have a hardened heart having eyes? Do you not see? How many baskets did you pick up? Twelve. How many baskets did you pick up? Seven. Which, at the bottom, I think we could summarize all of that to say, Jesus is asking, did you see anything? You're complaining about not having bread. Did you not just see anything? What did you see? in the feeding of the 5,000, 4,000. Make sense? So that's immediately before this two-stage healing of the blind man. Okay? What comes after it? Well, Jesus has got his disciples. They're way out in Caesarea Philippi, a long way from Jerusalem, the farthest that they've traveled. And that's when he asks them, who do people say that I am? Uh, some folks say you're Elijah. Some folks say you're John the Baptist, etc. We're one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? I think it's the equivalent question. But what do you see? What do you see, disciples? And maybe Peter in particular. Peter said, you're the Christ. Remember, what did he tell the blind man after he was healed? Remember what Jesus told him? Don't go into the village. Don't tell anyone. Just because there's, Jesus doesn't need all of the hype and press. He's got to... He's got to go die. What does he tell Peter and the disciples? Don't, don't, don't tell anyone about me what you just said. It's equivalent, isn't it? So the healing of the blind man, what do we, how do we make sense of that? Well, the disciples have seen, they've seen Jesus, but how? Pretty fuzzy, yeah, in fuzzy ways, right? And now he's taking them way out of Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? And he gets this confession of Peter. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And then the text says, verses 31 and 2, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, rejected by the elders, chief priests, be killed, three days rise again. And I uh, highlighted here, and he was stating the matter how plainly. No, 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 more, no more cryptic allusions. Who Jesus is will now be on full display. Just like up until that point in the ministry, the disciples had seen and almost asking, is 
He looks like the guy. He's doing things. We think he's the guy. He seems like the guy. People are acting like he might be the guy. Just like that blind man who was healed initially, seeing things blurry. But now, the way he's revealed himself to the disciples is the way he revealed himself in the blind man. Now, you see things clearly. And the clear thing they must see is what? They're going to know he's the son of man, not when he makes a military move, not when he makes a political move, but when he goes to Jerusalem and suffers and dies and rises again. So from this point on, Son of Man is on full display. Believe it or not, like it or not. So that's what he's done in revealing himself to the disciples. Understanding that discourse gets at how we understand that healing and what, how we make sense of what Jesus was doing there. Otherwise, it's pretty confusing. That makes sense? Any questions so far? So what's the first breadcrumb? I'll have them all at the end. Yeah, connections uh, within paragraphs or within, within episodes. Those connections could come in the form of repeated words and phrases, a cause and effect relationship, time stamp. Good. Second breadcrumb. Story shifts or pivots. Uh, we'll go through a couple of examples of this. Old Testament, New Testament. One is out of Genesis. Uh, it seems pretty clear that Moses arranged Genesis according to a word. Here's a couple of them. He's using a repeated word, and he's using that word to shift the story. Okay, uh, So we're getting a, 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 little of a, a double, uh, double benefit here. In Genesis, Moses repeated the phrase, one word in Hebrew, one word, but this is the account of these are the generations of. Ten times. What is he doing? Pivoting the story. At every juncture, the reader says, okay, we've, st we've now stopped one episode, and now we're, we're starting a new episode, a new focus. Okay? He does that ten times intentionally. Ten probably has a significant, meaningful um, emphasis to it. And you can see all the names there. What, what strikes me, what I was reminded about, about this, is we, when we think of Genesis, and when we think broadly maybe more of redemptive history, but particularly in Genesis, I'm, trying to, I'm going to ask a leading question to the court. What, do we, what comes to mind? How do we... How do we, when we think of Genesis, what things come to mind? Events. I think of, yeah, we think of the Tower of Babel and the flood. We think of these major events. But Moses is telling us to focus on what? People. That God's redemptive, the story of redemption is the story of people. It's not an abstract category. It's not a philosophical category. That God is using people to accomplish the redemption of his people. He's using people to reverse what happened, you see. It might, uh, it might encourage us to think more carefully about the people, people around us, right? Uh, the redemptive work that God does in us and for us. We tend to break our lives down by events as well. Not wrong to do. 
but could he get our attention and say, wait a second, what, what people is God using to advance, if you will, his, his redemptive story in our own life and church? Uh, another story shift comes, actually the text in Mark 8, we, we can stay there, that when Jesus gets to, elicits this confession from Peter, Immediately, they're, they're at Caesarea Philippi, a long way from Jerusalem. This, he's taking them all the way out there. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You're Christ. Okay, now that we've got that confession, now what? Now we're all going back to Jerusalem, where Jesus is going to suffer, die, and rise again. So this, there's a story pivot right there that, the, that Mark is getting, uh, getting our attention with, if you will. That the Son of Man that you've now confessed, you're the Christ, the Son of God, okay. Now you're going to know who the Son of Man is by his own death and burial and resurrection. It'll be very clear at that point. That makes sense? Any questions about that bread? So what are the two breadcrumbs so far? Connections. Connections. Story breaks. Yeah, story pivots, story breaks. Okay. They're all over the place. You'll now not be able to unsee them. A third breadcrumb. If I can work my little deal here. Uh, our interchanges. Now, this is what our brother Charles was bringing up. So, interchanges are two, maybe more, but at least two, uh, interwoven stories. They are what I call them literary switchbacks. Where an author starts a story, interrupts that story to tell us another story, and then returns to the original story. So he starts story A, stops it, tells us story B, and then returns to story A. And if you read it, you can almost, you could take story B out. If you could shove those stories together, then you've got yourself an interchange. You know that an interchange has happened. Author might be contrasting characters in it or themes that he's trying to get at. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is famous for it. You read throughout Mark, Mark is constantly starting a story, Pause, tells us another story, and then picks up on the original story. And both stories help us interpret the other. Okay? So we'll look at some of those. Duval Hayes bring up uh, Eli and his pathetic sons compared to, this is an interchange, weaving two stories together intentionally so that we see the difference between Eli's pathetic sons and who? Yeah, Hannah's faithful son. So we'll see a couple of. So I have a Hannah lens that's in the white background, and then the Eli lens, I, call it whatever you want, is on the other side. So can you all see that? Could somebody read the Hannah lens? Just the first one there. Now somebody read the Eli lens. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know Yahweh. Ah, he's doing this apart. Right? This is this interwoven in the text. Right? Eli's sons are what? Worthless. worthless. They don't even know Yahweh. Samuel has been dedicated to Yahweh since birth. Okay? Somebody read the next Hannah lens. Both with 
Excellent. And now the Eli lens. Now Eli heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel. Yeah. So Samuel is growing in favor. The folks like Samuel. Israel doesn't like Eli's sons. Somebody read this last Hannah lens. Excellent. And now the Eli lens. Behold, days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. So what did the Lord do for Hannah? He gave her a bunch of kids. And what did he do with Eli? We're cutting you off. Now, these are just three examples, but the whole story is like that. Stuff's always, stuff is happening all throughout that text, emphasizing God's favor towards Hannah and Samuel and his disfavor towards Eli and uh, that priesthood, uh, if you will. That makes sense? This next one, I, oh, I just love this next one. Um, this has come out of Matthew 26. Someone read that Jesus lens verse. Excellent. This is the next verse. Now somebody read this. So, so I'm, I meant to introduce this. Word. We, know, we know in English we have an interchange by this word. What? Meanwhile. meanwhile. We know when we read that, okay, so we're stopping one story. Meanwhile, something else is going on at the same time. Okay? So here is Jesus lens. Meanwhile, what's going on with Peter? Someone can read that. Do you see some interplay there? We've got a couple of words. The high priest is mentioned there. We've got scribes and elders with Jesus. We've got officers with Peter. So Matthew is signaling what? An interchange. I'm about to weave what's going on with Jesus, smash cut, and we're going to look at what's going on with Peter at the same time. The whole text is like this. I'm going to draw attention to just a verse here that comes after those verses where Matthew introduces this interchange. Someone read this uh, Jesus lens. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now highlight that word, adjure. You might have some other word, exorkizo in Greek. So it's, he's putting Jesus under oath. Swear to me. Swear to the court who you are. Okay. So keep that in mind. Meanwhile, someone read what's happening with Peter. And again, he denied it with an oath. Do not, I do not know the man. It's the noun form of that word. So what, are we, what is Matthew intending us to make sense of here? While Jesus is swearing to be Peter's Messiah, Peter is swearing, I don't know the man. Same words. While we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. While we were enemies, Jesus is nevertheless holding himself out for us. Right? That's, an inter- that's the importance of interchange. Okay? That makes sense? Yes. Any questions? Alright, so what are the three breadcrumbs so far? Connections. Connections. Story. 
Sorry, pivots? Interchanges. That's right. Call them whatever you need to to make sense of them, but in principle, I think you get them. A fourth breadcrumb or chiasms. We borrow that word, Greek word, I mean, the Greek letter chi. It looks like an English X to us. Uh, so here's what, yeah. So if we were to visualize chiasms, this might be what it looks like, okay? Uh, with the, let's, let's take the middle one. So you got A, B, C, B, A. So the author is leading us through a chiasm where C, in this case, is sort of the pinnacle. Right? He's driving the text so that we get that. Or A, B, C, D, CBA. Whatever that, whatever that pinnacle, that apex is, he's, dry, he's organizing the text to get our attention so that we'll pay attention uh, to when we get to that apex. We just had one of these in, uh, I mean, they're all over the place, but uh, in Grace Group in the Psalms, Psalm 27 had one. Someone can read that little verse, verse 14. Wait for Yahweh, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for Yahweh. Yeah. So and we, we talked about this in your grace group, right? So we don't, wait on, we don't wait by sitting back and just kind of, well, I hope God does something, right? The author is saying that the, we are waiting when we are, what? Being strong and courageous. When we're about the Lord's business, courageous. That is waiting. That is serving. See, uh, Psalm 73, 1 is also one that Duval and Hayes bring up. They're all over the place. You won't be able to unsee them. Here's a, a rather famous one in Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 9. This is the, uh, the story of, the, of Babel, the Tower of Babel. We won't take time to read all of this. But it, it'll make your eyes bleed. I think reading uh, kind of this one huge long paragraph. But smart guys uh, really dissect this. I think they, they might be right, actually, but to see a chiasm in this text. You see this? This is Genesis 11, 1 through 9. So a chiasm is, you've got connecting phrases, right? So we begin with the whole earth. That is mirrored by the last one, the whole earth. And then you start moving in, right? Had the same language, is equivalent to Yahweh confused the language at the bottom. Do you see it? Building that chiasm to the middle apex, which is what? Yeah. Yahweh came down. God's not going to let them get away with this. You see? That's the point. That's the emphasis of the text. Okay. Uh, the book of Daniel is arranged this way. This is a freebie. This is not in Deval Hayes. The book of Daniel is arranged, at least the first seven chapters are. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 go together. You've got this dream of four kingdoms and Belshazzar's dream of four kingdoms. You've got Nebuchadnezzar's idolatry in the furnace in Daniel 3. That's mirrored by Darius's or Darius's idolatry in the lines and etc. Leading to that middle verse in Daniel 4.37. And Nebuchadnezzar confesses Yahweh is the one true God. Whether he becomes a Christian, we don't know. But he says the true thing about God. The whole text is arranged that way. Here's God's people in the middle of exile in a bad place. Uh, Israel's heroes gotten a three-year degree in Babylonian studies. They're PhDs now serving Nebuchadnezzar. And in light of all that, the text leads us to, but I'll make Nebuchadnezzar confess Yahweh, not the other way around. Now, here's a warning, though. Uh, don't force a chiasm where the author does not intend one. I mean, once you see this, you're like, oh, they've got to be everywhere. And now you get so obsessed with it. Well, it's just me. You get obsessed with it, trying to find that you don't enjoy the Bible anymore. So they are helpful stylistic devices. So here's 
my shade tree advice, if you find, if you think you see one, just, just pull the thread lightly. And if it gives, okay, maybe move one iteration in from either side. Okay, those look like those may match. And then maybe move one iteration. Do I see a connection here? Maybe you're onto one. But if you pull that thread and you're like, I, I'm just not seeing it, then, then put the chiasm down and slowly back away. Okay? Do not force it uh, where the author doesn't intend it. Like, don't, don't treat the Bible as a, like a Sudoku, where you're like, there's got, there's got to be something. I'm going to force one to be here. There's got to be something here. And uh, it's not very helpful. Uh, it's a, but if you find one, enjoy it, for sure. Any questions about that? So our four breadcrumbs so far are what? Yep. She owns that answer. Owns it. Story breaks, pivots. That's right. Yeah, interchanges, weaving a story, two stories in, in between each other, and chiasms. Those are all just literary devices that the author is trying to help us make sense of a discourse. The fifth, final breadcrumb are inclusios. What in the world is an inclusio? Anybody want to take a shot at that? I know some of our smart guys know it. It's, uh, it's where a passage begins with a particular word and ends with that same that's right. That's right. Deval Hayes, a literary technique in which a passage has the same or similar word, statement, event, at the beginning, at the end. That's Deval Hayes. Maxwell's is Maxwell. Inclusios are literary bookends. They're brackets that delineate the start and stop of a discourse. He's doing that intentionally. Okay? Let's look at a couple of examples of these. Uh, one very edifying one, I think, uh, comes from Psalms 1 and 2. Uh, that'll be our Old Testament example, and then the other one from Romans uh, chapter one. Have you noticed Psalms one and two? It's an unfortunate chapter break, I suppose, uh, in Psalms one and two. Uh, but the author very intentionally put those where they are at the beginning of the Psalter. You know how Psalm one one begins? How blessed is the man walking the counsel of the standing the sinners, sin and see the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and the law is meditates day and night. Okay, that's how Psalm one begins. How does Psalm two end? How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now the question is, well, which is it? If I want to be the blessed man, should I delight in the law of the Lord? Or do I kiss the king's son? And the psalmist would say what? Yes. Yes. The psalms are there together. I, I, I would, but practically one psalm with an inclusio. How blessed, how blessed. And in between that, that's, that's bracketing, that's collapsing, if you will, that's smushing all this. What is it? What is the blessed man? The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. And that law is embodied in the king who is the son that you better kiss or else he gets real mad, you see. That's the uh, inclusio in Psalm 1 1. And Psalm 1 1 and 2, therefore, define the rest of the Psalter. The rest of the Psalter is working out delighting in the law of the Lord finding yourself humbly in the service of Israel's king, who is the son. Doing good on time? I don't like using the timer, man. That is too stressful for me with the beeping and the honking. So I, you just have to holler. Uh, I wonder if the whole book of Romans is an inclusio. 
Romans 1, someone read Romans 1, 5. It's on the screen. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Yeah. Now, Romans 16, 26. The mystery now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. Ah, see so he begins Romans, obedience of faith among the Gentiles, ends Romans, obedience of faith. See that phrase? So as, as rightly so, as theologically rich as Romans is, and we make much of it, and we ought, with an, this inclusio, what, but what does... What is Paul trying to smush here in, into the letter? Is it mere, let's confess the right things and get the order of salvation right and get the categories and definitions right? Important. But what is Paul intending for the letter? What effect is he intending the letter to have? The obedience effect. Yeah, yes, understand all of this stuff, but it is to provoke in us obedience. I, I think that flows from faith here. So if that doesn't compel, that's Paul's, in, it seems, that's Paul's intention in writing Romans. He's not writing a systematic theology. He's trying to provoke obedience among the people of God. And he's using an inclusio to do so. That makes sense? Okay. So here are the five breadcrumbs. Connections between, this is for discourses, so how am I going to, we've talked about words, make up sentences, and make up paragraphs, paragraphs make up discourses, how am I going to put all that stuff together? I've got to look for some connections between paragraphs. I might have a discourse, I might have a start and stop of a thought, or an episode, an argument. Is there a major break or pivot? One major, uh, uh, I had, had this in there, I took it out. Um, a major story break or pivot in Isaiah, you know this. The first 39 chapter of Isaiah is all bad news. And how does chapter 40, verse 1 begin? Isaiah 41, 40, verse 1. Comfort, oh comfort my people. Now he's just told the king, like, everybody's going to be carried off to, to Babylon. You've got nothing left, and they're going to move into your houses, and you're going to lose all your stuff. And the king thinks, oh, okay, well, at least, at least I'm going to be okay. And, but it's bad news. In fact, it's, there's such a stark shift between Isaiah's 1 to 39, Isaiah 40 to 66, that a lot of smart guys think some guy, other guy must have wrote it. The same guy could not have written the last part that wrote the first one. That's a story shift or pivot. Pay attention to those things. Interchanges, interweaving of stories. Um, a good primer on that is reading the Gospel of Mark. Pay attention, he does it all the time. Chiasms, sort of, remember the, the X, sort of building a text and there are mirroring phrases or words that are leading up to a, from an apex and then inclusios, brackets, bookends. And we know an author is setting off for us a discourse. Okay. Questions, comments, corrections, requests for drop slips. <laughs> Walk according to the course of the world. Using that word walk. And in verse 10, it says, 
God has prepared works that you should walk in them. And so it's the, it's the picture of what you walk like and what you're supposed to now because of the middle part. It's not a chiasm, but the middle part because God saved you. Yeah, yeah, amen, amen. Yeah, it brings the text. I mean, the, the text is living. <laughs> We're the ones dead to it. But um, these are all helpful breadcrumbs that God's put in there. God's, God wants us to get this. And these are little helps that make us thrilled with the with his word. Um, yeah. Yeah, Jeff. Um, I'm curious if you have just at the ready, of course, it's okay if you don't, uh, an example of like a chiasm where people thought they saw a chiasm, but you don't think it's there. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not that okay. smart. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Genesis 11 is debate, debated. That's sort of the classic. I don't know, maybe four, but I don't know. This seems pretty, pretty clear. But um, again, in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, a lot of people try to force that into a chiasm because they see some similar phrases, but it's not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you start getting, and you lose the forest for the tree. Like, at, you're, you get so excited about seeing some sort of, you know, like some more crossword puzzle. You're figuring out the clue that you. You don't rejoice in the text, and you don't obey it. <laughs> that's the that's the point of it. Um, you get more excited about what you found out about some little literary trick, maybe that, uh, that God didn't intend. Excellent. Yeah. Any other questions, thoughts, comments? Could you help me understand the story shift of this thing a little bit better? Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I so, saw all the yeah, okay. Well, let's go. Well, let's use that since we have it. So, um, we have, for example, heavens and earth. So here's the, the generations of, the story of, as if personified. Heavens and earth, a lot of that's Adam and Eve, a, a chunk of that, and the fall. So now we have this big picture now of what's gone wrong with everybody. How's God going to fix it? Well, he's going to fix it through, okay, here's here are the generations of Adam. Okay, so he's going to give Adam a bunch of kids. That's part of it. He ends, in this case, in 6-8, Adam has a bunch of kids. Sons and daughters, and they die. That's y'all. Um, oh, it's just a sweet text in Genesis 5. And they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. And you get, and you get, when you get down to Noah, you, you get down to Noah at the end of Genesis 5, and the text says, and the people said, maybe this one will be the one to give us rest. There was this anticipation with every son. Is this the one? Is this the one that is going to undo the curse? Is this the one that's going to give us rest? And so we have a bunch of kids, and Adam's having kids everywhere, and they're having kids everywhere, and the text narrows, and the story shifts. So we're going to stop with Adam and all of his kids, and now we're shifting to Noah. And we're going to look at Noah for a little while. Noah has a couple of uh, three sons, etc. A lot of stuff happens with Noah and them. And then... So Noah has three sons. They have a bunch of kids. But then the story stops, and it pivots where? To Shem. So now this, this redemptive funnel is happening. How, how is God going to fix this? And the story is ratcheting, if you will. Often the thing I try to illustrate it, if you've been up in the St. Louis Arch, anybody been up in that? Yeah. Have you thrown up? Anybody thrown up in the little building? <laughs> obviously, because you have to go up. It's a pretty brilliant way to get up there, I suppose. You've got to go up, and then because of the curve, you've got to kind of shift over. That's what the text is doing. We've got to go with track, but in order to get to the pinnacle, we've got to shift tracks to get us to the thing. And 
or get us to the, to the guy, which all narrows down by the end of Genesis to who? Jacob. Yeah. With interest in Joseph in particular. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that, that helps him or not. Yeah. Yeah, brother. I don't know what time it is. But. Amen. Amen. With, with the question of being, okay, let's say you found this brother or sister, to what end? What, what is it about Christ that now you are glorying in in a fresh, new way? What is the text leading it? Because it ought to be. That, that's the conclusion of, of, of our pursuit there. Um, yeah, it'd be cool. Oh, that's, that's a cool find. But are you compelled to love Jesus in a, in a particular way now? Is, that, is the text leading us to that uh, or not? If not, then what was the use? Yeah. 